I'm Todd Jones, recovering from 30 years as a sports writer. Thanks for joining me as I sit down with some of the best sports writers of our time who knew the greatest athletes and coaches and experienced firsthand some of the biggest sports moments of the past half century. We'll share stories behind the stories, some we've only told each other. Pull up a seat on Press Box Access. Muhammad Ali, the greatest. He was so much more than a three-time heavyweight champion of the world. No sports figure of the 20th century can match Ali's impact on boxing, on sports in general, and off society. On this January 17th of 2024, which would have been his 82nd birthday, we're celebrating Ali with a special episode of Press Box Access. This is a compilation of stories about Ali that guests have shared on our show in the past three years. Eight sports writers recall their memories of the greatest inside the ring and out. Their tales go as far back as 1960 and take us all through his incredible life. They put us ringside at some of boxing's most famous moments. They take us with Ali on trains, into hotel rooms, to the Olympics, even to the circus. Let's begin with Tom Archdeacon, who has covered more than 200 fights as a columnist in Ohio and Florida. Arch, tell us about Ali. Well, he was, uh, he's probably, of, of all the athletes I uh, have dealt with, he's one of my favorite, if not the favorite guy, just because of the way he treated I don't care if it was uh, royalty or the guy sweeping the floor at the Fifth Street Gym. He treated him the same. And he just took you on a, some some real adventures. And uh, I had a few with him. And, and I, I just loved the guy. I loved his courage, too. Yeah, I used to. So I, you know, I, I worked in Miami, Miami, Florida for a long time. I was a columnist down there. And uh, I'd go over at lunchtime and, and, you know, I'd go to the Fifth Street Gym almost every day, and I see the old timers in there, and Ali trained in there uh, and part of the time, and, and I would see him and talk to him. And so one day we were, I'd been in there for about a week, and we were talking, and the Ringling Brothers Circus always opens in Miami Beach. Uh, they bring the elephants across the causeway, and they uh, open. So he asked me if I want to go to the circus with him. <laughs> I went, uh, yeah, that'd be all right. So he... It comes by, they sent a car by uh, the gym. I came to the gym, picked me up at the gym, and in there is his two little daughters. I think Layla, I mean, he's got a bunch of kids, but Layla must have been, I don't know, two, three years old, and she had another sister, Hannah, that was maybe a year older or so. And so the four of us go to the uh, to the circus, and we're sitting down kind of, you know, it's indoors at, uh, at the convention center in Miami Beach. We're sitting down in kind of the front row, and... I go out and get us some popcorn. We're sitting there, and Ali, all of a sudden, while I was getting popcorn, I don't didn't know what happened. I come back, and Ali tells me, he says, I'll be right back. And I go, oh, okay. So now I'm there with his two little girls, and five minutes turns into 10 minutes, and I'm starting to panic, and they're starting to answer on. I'm going, you know, what the hell's going on here? And all of a sudden, the curtain's at the far end part, and there comes an elephant in, and there's who's on the back of the elephant but Ali. And the place goes nuts. And they come over and the little girls are squealing on and and they got a handler in front. And they come over to where we're sitting in the front box. And the guy has me hand one one of the little girls over and he puts her down on the ground. The elephant puts his trunk around her and lifts her up and brings her up to Ali. They set the next one up with Ali. And Ali, the little girls are waving goodbye to me. And Ali takes off with his... I never saw him again the rest of the night. You know, they uh, that was... Uh, so uh, it, it was... Uh, that was 
going to the circus with Ali. You never know what's going to happen with him. But it was, uh, you know, years later, and I covered some Ali fights along the way. A couple, not not a lot, but I, I covered some, especially his last losses. And and uh, but years later, I see Ali at a at a function at a junior college, and uh, he's there, and he's you know walking kind of wobbly and things like this, and. He sees me and he motions over and his voice was kind of a whisper and all and he motions me to come over and he goes, you got old. And I go, well, you're pretty old. You look pretty old yourself. And he goes, yeah, but I'm still pretty. And, and then he just said, he still had that little sparkle in his eye. And I just, I just, I liked, you know, the way he, he treated everybody, but the way he stood up, you know, we got some athletes now that are, we're seeing it again, uh, some athletes that are really standing for something and will speak out on matters of social justice and things like that. But that's that, that's what I admired most. Dave Kindred, on my personal Mount Rushmore of sports writers, covered 17 of all these fights, dating back to when he wrote for the Courier-Journal in Louisville, Kentucky, the champ's hometown. There was never a dull moment. Do you recall the first time you met Ali? I think it was in 1966, right? Absolutely. I mean, again, I was a kid, a kid on the copy desk, but they knew I wanted to be a writer. I was in there every day looking for something to do. And one day, uh, I since I've looked it up, it was one day in October of 1966. A boss comes into the office. Everybody was my boss at the time. And <laughs> yeah. says, Clay is says, Clay's in town. Go find him. So they so still called him Cassius that time, Clay. Yeah. It was two years after he had announced that his name was Muhammad Ali. The newspaper style still was to call him Cassius Clay, comma, also known as Muhammad Ali, comma. Wow. Uh, so Clay's in town. Go find him. Well, I knew who they meant, but I didn't know where to go find him. And they said, well, his dad's got a uh, art gallery, quote, art gallery, unquote, uh, two blocks down Broadway. So I went down there and, and saw Cassius Clay Sr. He said, he's, he's, I, just go look where, go look where at our house. Well, okay, where's your house? Well, it was in the west end of Louisville. Well, I didn't even know east from west. Which way is west? So it pointed <laughs> me toward the neighborhood. You know, it was where most of the uh, African-Americans in Louisville lived, West End of Louisville. Mm -hmm. So I go driving. I've got my son with me, three years old. And I'm just, just stop and ask somebody, you seen Cassius? Everybody had seen Cassius. <laughs> <laughs> he was in town to do a promotion. He'd just gone back into his old neighborhood and was walking around just seeing everybody. So Cassius, Ali, got in my car and we drove around all day wherever he wanted to go. He was carrying my son with him. So from then on, uh, I just, I always looked at him as a sweetheart. I always thought that he was, and of course that was talking about 1966. That was at the height of a time when most people in America despised him. He was mm. at 66, 67, because he was refusing the draft. He had joined the black Muslims. He was uh, probably the most reviled man in America. Uh, but I saw him as a sweetheart. You know, he, he, was, he was great with kids. He was fun to be with. 
And I saw him as that person from 66 through last time I saw him was somewhere in the year of 2006, 2010. Uh, he was that guy all the time. I just saw him in a little different way than other people had seen him. Uh, and so I wrote about him that day. Uh, and I've been writing about him for 50 years, think almost 60 years since. He's, I think you, a, I think you said that you interviewed him more than 300 times, right? Well, yeah. And that's just a guess. I mean, it was ridiculous. I was always with him. I mean, when he was in town, I was with him when he was in Louisville, every fight I'd be there for a week ahead of the fight, you know, and his hotel room was always open. You know, it, you, you could not avoid him. And, and, and unlike most celebrities who, you know, have this aura of don't bother me, Ali wanted to be bothered. Mm-hmm. Ali wanted people around him. If, if there wasn't anybody with him, he would go find them. He would just go stand on the street corner. Just, let's just go, let's go for a walk. Because he knew that pretty soon there'd be 500 people following him. So 300 is probably a, uh, uh, a conservative estimate of how many times that I, well, and it's not even true, Todd, to say that I interviewed him. Why do you say times. that? Why do you say I, that? I probably interviewed him twice. Most of the time I just listened. <laughs> you know, he just start. He just start talking. You know, I mean, I don't know how many times I'd be in a hotel room with you know another ten, fifteen writers, and he'd be declaiming on some subject. And if you, he'd look at you and say, "You getting this down? You getting this down, man? This is heavy, man." You know, <laughs> if you weren't taking proper notes, he would just stop until you caught up. <laughs> so, not really. It was never really a dialogue with with Ali. It was mostly listening. It was endlessly entertaining. And uh, it was always fun to be around him. Yeah, he became a different person, too. Yeah, he became a different person 1974. Uh, before then, he was the, the racist, ranting, black Muslim, you know, who did every, you know, we're taught to not talk about politics or religion or race. He talked about politics, religion, and race all the time. Right. 74, right. he became different because Elijah Muhammad, the leader of the, the Nation of Islam sect, died. Ali was basically freed up by that. The, the nation changed its tune, became a more reasonable, um, more actually began to practice true Islam instead yeah. of the Nation of Islam. Yeah. Uh, so he became a different guy, became closer to the guy that I thought that he was that first time in 66. Right. Well, you really got close to him in 1973 because I read your book, Dave, one of your many books. I read Sound and Fury, your book about Ali and, and uh, the announcer Howard Cosell and their relationship, the dual biography that you wrote. There was a moment in 1973 when, well, you set the scene. It's in Las Vegas. It's a hotel suite. What the hell happened? Well, as I said, his hotel suite was always open. He wanted people there. I was there. I don't know. I forget what fight it was, but I was there. I go up to the hotel room, the suite. There's a bedroom to the right, a bedroom to the left with a center area where everybody was gathered. I can see Ali in bed in the right-hand side. 
and he sees me. He waves at me, come on in, trying to do a column on his entourage. Well, he's in bed. He can't hear me. I can't hear him. So I get closer to the bed and he raises up the sheet of the bed, corner of the sheet and says, get in. <laughs> so I don't know what most people would do when the heavyweight champion of the world says, get in, but I did. And one of us was wearing clothes <laughs> and we pull the blankets up over our heads and I do this interview you know, or I'm asking about his entourage. He takes my notebook and writes the names of his people working for him and how much money he's paying them each week. And we talk about whatever fight it is. We're like a couple of little kids hiding from their mother, hiding from their parents under the, under the blanket. They're supposed to be asleep, but they're talking. So I, I get done with the interview and I leave. Uh, I try to leave and then I realize that Ali still has my notebook. So I have to go back and get my notebook and then I leave. But yeah, I, I use that as a introduction to that book because it was a way of, of showing how close I was literally and figuratively, uh, to Ali at that time. Right. You know, Dave, Ali's become such a mythical figure. Um, what do you think we get wrong about him today? Well, I think we get wrong to Parkinson's for one thing. Yeah, I think what we see and what we saw in Ali was what we have now identified in football players as CTE. Mm. You know, it's brain damage. You know, every fighter, you know, every fighter who in the last hundred years have been called punch drunk. That's what it, it's brain damage. And Ali, um, may have developed Parkinson's from the brain damage, but he was suffering for a long time before that. Soaring words, you know, stumbling, trembling. You know, he was uh, a, a wounded person. Mm -hmm. So I think we get that wrong in the sense that we kind of absolve him from that. You know, the absolve, absolve ourselves even from being entertained by this man being ruined. Tim Smith covered boxing for many, many years at the New York Times, New York Daily News, and Cincinnati Inquirer. He tells us about a special day in the early 90s when he spent three hours with Ali. It's unbelievable. And, and access that he granted and that he, you know, that he invited. Greg Noble, the, the sports editor at the Cincinnati Inquirer, they were having a uh, card signing, and it was still one of the most eclectic card signings I've ever been to because it was Billy Martin, uh, Johnny Bench, and uh, I think that Oscar Robertson was there. But it was Muhammad Ali. It was a huge card signing at Riverfront Coliseum. Those are some big names. And so, and so Greg says, go down and see if you can talk to Ali, you know, because, uh, you know, Ali was, it was the onset of, like, Parkinson's for Ali. Mm -hmm. And so I went down and, you know, I... I didn't pay because, you know, I, I wasn't a reporter, local reporter. And so I went down and I, and I, you know, sidled up to Ali while he was signing some autographs. And I said, you know, I'd like to interview you and talk to you. And he says, well, you know, I'm working right now, but if you come by my hotel room tomorrow morning at seven o'clock, I'll give you all the time you need. 
And I'm thinking, this guy's setting me up, man. <laughs> I'm going to go knock on this guy's hotel room. And, right. and somebody, right. you know, some drunk's going to open the door and like punch me in the face. <laughs> <You know? laughs> so, so I go to the hotel and it's like some airport hotel near the Cincinnati airport. It was in Kentucky. And so I go and I knock on the door and like Ali comes to the door and he is larger than life. Basically, I'm I'm about the same height. I mean, he's like six two. I'm six one. So, but I felt like I was looking up at this monumental figure, mm. you know, when he came to the door. And he seven o'clock in the morning, he's fully dressed. Mm. I mean, he's got all like, you know, nice shirts, slacks, and everything, you know, dress shoes. And he says, Come in, and it's like a suite. So we're in the in a certain, you know, in, in one part of the suite, he's like, my kids are sleeping in the other room, so we have to be a little bit quiet. I was like, okay. <laughs> was Sam Weiss watching the kids? So for the next three hours, I talked to Ali about everything. I mean, you name it, we talked about it. Fighting Frazier at Madison Square Garden. We talked about, you know, being suspended for the three years being a conscientious objector. And I, st- I still can't find this thing. He tried to convert me to, uh, to to Islam. He signed like a little Islamic track for me, gave it to me, and did all of his magic tricks. You know, the cricket behind the ear, the coin from behind the ear. He even levitated. And to this day, I don't know how he did it, but he said, take this <laughs> piece of paper and slide it under my feet. He said, I'm going to be off the ground. And I literally slid a piece of paper under his feet. He was not touching the ground. <laughs> he was not touching the ground. Todd, when I tell you the guy wasn't touching the ground, I slid the piece of paper under his feet. And it wasn't a heel to toe thing. It was like literally, he's like sliding. He's like, no, because you're not going to believe it. He's like sliding from side to side. Come on. <laughs> it, was, it was the weirdest thing. So, you know, like midway during the, through the interview, this was the wackiest part. Midway through the interview, I'm talking to Ali. And he falls asleep. Mm. I mean, just like falls asleep, just like starts, like nods out. And he's sitting there, he's like nodding. And I'm going like, okay, what do I do? Do I get up and leave? Mm-hmm. All right. Am I a creep? I mean, am I going to do the creepy thing and like sit here and watch him sleep? Do I just sit here silently and look at my notes or whatever? So what happened? I did the creepy thing. I sat there and watched Ali sleep. <laughs> 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 so I'm like, I can't leave. Uh, you know, I, I can try to wake him up and tell him, you know, I, but he woke up. When he woke up, he was refreshed. He was great. You know, he, he at that point, his, his voice was softer, but, he, but it, you know, he wasn't like showing any signs of, other than nodding out, he wasn't showing any signs of like, you know, the Parkinson's having a major effect on him or anything. Mm-hmm. You know, he did his Ollie shuffle. He told me that he would beat Ali. I mean, he told me that he would beat Mike Tyson, and uh, you know, and it wouldn't take him as long as it would take him to beat uh, Sonny Liston. Hmm. I was like, "Wow, really?" He said, "Yeah." He said, "He's very fast. He's strong." He said, "But I'm faster and I'm stronger." Hmm. And I'm like, "Okay, whatever you say, Mr. Ali." Hey, man, he levitates. I'm not betting against the greatest. Yeah, I'm not betting against the guy who can, <laughs> who can get up off the ground. Jerry Eisenberg knows about Ali levitating and much more. Jerry, who began his amazing journalism career in 1951, covered more of Ali's fights than any sports writer. He witnessed a levitation act on a day that he traveled with Ali by train from New York City to the state capital of Albany. And wait until you hear how that day ended. 
A guy, a guy by the name of Haywood Plumador that nobody remembers was an assemblyman in the New York State Legislature. And he got his committee to vote. They're going to have hearings about banning boxing from New York because New York is so pure. You know, they can put this up is, with the mafia, but they can't put up with boxing. All this right. is the early 60s. Yeah. Yep. So, all right. So I go up there. And I'm in the Grand Central Station because John Condon, who is the PR guy for the Garden, said, it's going to be an exciting hearing. You, you want to come and cover it? And I said, yeah, I will come. All right. I meet him in the lobby, and there's this commotion in the lobby of Grand Central Station. Now, to get attention in the lobby of Grand Central Station, God forbid you drop a bomb or something. I don't know. People are going to work. They're coming back. It's 830 in the morning. You know, it's just, it's a mess. And I hear this commotion. And it's himself. He comes in and he's waving a magic wand. He's got a wand in his hand. <laughs> and these poor bastards, they're in the gray flannel suit army. Uh, uh, army. They don't want to go to work. It's the same shit five days a week. They go back and, and, and they know they're, maybe they're not getting along with their wives and they have a drink. They're just not happy people. He stops him. I will do magic for you. Who the hell is this nut? You know, and he... And then he gets up on his toes and he says, I am levitating. <laughs> I, I said, I can't. I, 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 this guy is crazy. So we get on a trainer and he p- decides to sit next to me. You know, we're talking to the trainer. By the time we get up there, my ears are bleeding. He gets, he walks in. I notice something all of a sudden. The room is packed with, with secretaries who work at the commission and in government buildings. and They all want to see him. They all want to see Ali, the, his charisma. Yeah. He gets up and Plumidor says, well, I think it's very suspicious that you can call arounds in which you will win a fight. And Ali says, well, I know you're a good God-fearing Christian. You must have read the Bible. Uh, I'm a prophet. You know what prophets are. He said, I don't think you're a prophet. I think you're a thief. And Ali said, you think I'm a crook? Well, he said, he promoted him. He was an assemblyman. Well, Senator... All I can say is it takes a thief to know a thief. Not a joint breaks up, right? Now, we're going back to New York City on the midnight train. I go, that sounds like a song title. Yeah, I think and, so. And, and I'm writing in my room there. We, we took a hotel room because it's midnight. We're going to travel. He comes in the room. He says, I can't. I'm so tired. I got to sleep. I got to sleep. I said, well, lay down on my bed. I'm going to. My typewriter is going to make my say, You'll go to sleep. So he did. Ali he slept in your room? Yeah, he slept, well, he, he, and he snored on my <laughs> bed, uh, which I never used anyway because we were going back that night. So I'm writing, he's snoring. Now, uh, wherever we went after that, he would say, put his arm around me and say, this man gave me his bed. This man gave me his bed. And finally one day I said, that's because I didn't know who you were. <laughs> That's the kind of relationship we But he have. never forgot. Eisenberg still has a vivid memory of the first time he encountered Ali. I met him in 1960 at the Rome Olympics. Just a skinny uh, kid from Louisville. Oh, I, I didn't even go to his fight. He won a big deal. He won the light heavyweight championship of the Olympics, which is like being a Apache uh, rain dance chief today. You know, it, doesn't, it didn't mean a thing. Right. But, he, but I'm, he, he's sitting on the steps at Rome in at the Olympic Village. And he's got the medal, and he's holding it up. And it, athletes are walking by above him, you know, on a, on, a, on a kind of a street. Mm-hmm. 
and he's yelling, this is the Olympic medal, like they didn't know. And like half of them didn't have one. And he's saying, uh, this is going to make me the greatest fighter in history, the greatest of all time. I'm gonna re-. And I didn't pay attention to it until I noticed something. What? All the, and most of the people who walked by couldn't understand what the hell he was saying. They didn't speak English. And I noticed these three girls stopped after he was speaking and looked over their shoulders, stopped, and took a second look at him. And I said, there's something about this guy I better not forget. Mm. I mean, he that's who he was. I mean, he was a very handsome guy, and he was brash, and, and, and I didn't pay attention to him. And he kept calling me on the phone when he got back with Angelo Dundee, kept putting him up to it. If we can get him in a fight, if we can get him to come see one of your fights, we're okay. Well, I Dundee, was, Dundee was trying to get fights he was you. you. Well, not that fight. He got to, he was trying to get publicity. He wanted me to come to the fight. Right. So Allie calls me from Pittsburgh, and he says, you got to come to Pittsburgh Thursday. I said, first of all, it's snowing in Pittsburgh right now. I don't like to stop for gas in Pittsburgh. Why would I come to see you fight a former professional football player who can't spell fight. Why, why would I come there to see you do that? He said, because in the fourth round, I'm going to up there. I said, fine, fine. Call me some other time. I'll talk to you. I got to go to work. He calls me back after he knocks out Charlie Powell. And I'm thinking, I ought to go see him once, right? As luck would have it, the first time I actually saw him in person, no television, no nothing, fight was Doug Jones, and I thought he lost the fight. Yeah, Doug Jones knocked him down, right? No, no, he didn't knock him down, but he he, he won the fight. I thought, I mean, you know, and Ali was a house fighter at that point and getting ready. Well, the fight was not good. That's why he had to go to England and fight Henry Cooper. Cooper, right, right. Because the listed fight was in jeopardy. Ali, of course, improved enough to shock the world and become heavyweight champion as Cassius Clay, as he was known then, when he upset Sonny Liston on February 25th, 1964. He held the title until 1967, when he was banished from boxing for his refusal to be inducted into the military. After 43 months out of the ring, Ali returned to the fight game and future glory. But he was a different fighter, as Dave Kindred explained. And you did see him at his best as an athlete. I think sometimes, too, you know, we rightfully remember the fact of what he stood for, what he, what he expressed, all the right things that he stood for. But that platform came from his performance as an athlete, as a boxer. And you really kind of saw two different Ali's, right, as a fighter. You saw the young one before he was uh, banished because of his, stat, his uh, stance on the draft. And then you saw the older champ, you know, win back his uh, title. Um, so you saw, you saw, you know, the athlete of Ali develop over the years too. Well, I've often said that the two greatest fighters of all time were Cassius Clay and Muhammad Ali. So they're completely different. Ali, Cassius Clay was 6'2", 6'3", 200 pounds. You couldn't hit him. You couldn't catch him. You couldn't find him. You know, sting like a butter, float like a butterfly, sting like a bee. Absolutely perfect description of what he was then. He's the greatest athlete that I ever saw, greatest athlete that 
that I will ever see. You know, it was just, he was beautiful. He was strong. He was fast. He was quick witted in, in the ring. I'm talking about as an athlete, you know, right. and then he, he lost when he was suspended on the whole draft conviction thing, 67 to 70, he was gone four years, the four years, the greatest four years of any athlete's life. He didn't fight every athlete whether it's baseball, football, whatever, the greatest years of their life are 27 to 30, 27 to 31. They're learning it. They're mastering it. They've mastered it. He had those four years taken away from him. So he came back as a different fighter against Joe Frazier the first time. Uh, It was a great fight, greatest fight that I will ever see. Vito Stellino was ringside as a reporter at Madison Square Garden that night of March 8, 1971, when a champ, Frazier, defeated Ali in a fight of the century. What I remember the most is that uh, uh, my assignment was the Muhammad Ali press conference after the match, you know, right. which was, which was the cover of the assignment. You know, I wasn't really a boxing writer, so... Uh, but that was the thing to cover because he was such a, you know, Muhammad. He was Muhammad Ali, and he was going to say all kinds of things. And you know, so I'm looking forward. Right, to you it. weren't going to be lacking. You weren't going to be lacking for quotes that night, Vito. Uh, that's for sure. Well, uh, Muhammad took such a beating in that in that match that he did not come out for the press conference. So instead of Muhammad, we got Bundini Brown. <laughs> so I went from having uh, what would have been a great story to uh, a press conference with Bundini Brown talking about the uh, about the fight. And uh, uh, I don't think people remember that now that, that Muhammad didn't even uh, you know come out for a press conference, which was so unusual for him because he loved the spotlight. Right. But as I say, he. Uh, uh, he may have fought him too soon. You know, the, the three and a half years, uh, he, you know, he was rusty. And uh, the amazing thing is he came back and won the other two. Exactly, and, uh, yeah, yeah. But actually, they, uh, you know, of course, then he kept fighting and, and the toll it took on, uh, uh, the toll it took on him. And uh, it, it actually, in the end, became kind of a sad story. Yeah, but, sure uh, did. I mean, you think about that. That fight was so brutal that Frazier, the winner, was immediately taken to the hospital, and he was the winner. Yeah, yeah, it was. Uh, it was. It was just amazing. They, uh, you know, they went fifteen rounds then, and uh, he he finally knocked Ali down at one point. I think late in the fight, you know. It, uh, but yeah, it, it was. Uh, uh, it, it was just brutal, and. Uh, uh, and it was such an event, but on the other hand, they had all these second thoughts about the price those guys paid for those three fights, you know? Right. So, and of course, now boxing, nobody even knows who the heavyweight champion is, you know? <laughs> Dave Kindred also covered that epic fight and shared his memories. Well, it was Ali's third fight back. The first one was against Jerry Quarry in Atlanta, kind of a warm-up, knocked him out in seventh round. Then he fought Oscar Bonavina, who was a, a great fighter in his own right, unrecognized at the time. 15 rounds, Ali won the decision, or knocked him out, really technical knockout in the 15th. And then he comes to Frazier. Frazier was 
a fierce fighter. Frazier was a, probably the greatest fighter of his time, except for Ali. I was in the first row, ringside, just opposite Ali's corner, third or fourth round. Third or fourth round, Ali is on the ropes, leaning backwards, and looks down at me. We make eye contact. I don't think he knows who I am. I'm just a guy sitting at ringside. But he's doing this no contest, no contest. Meanwhile, Frazier is just wailing away at him. You know, and Ali was Ali gave away three or four rounds early. You know, so he was not going to win a decision. He was going to have to knock him out. And he wasn't going to knock Frazier out that night. You know, it was, uh, it was an, an amazing, an amazing fight, an amazing athletic contest. Um, but it was, you know, what is that? 29, 51 years ago. Mm-hmm. You know, I can still see it. Frank Sinatra was in the front row, right? Taking photos. <laughs> he was on the other side of the ring for me. You know, I, I didn't have any conversation with, with Sinatra, but I did see him. You know, and one thing, one of the mysteries is where was Howard Cosell that night? You know, I I did this book, Ali and Cosell, but Cosell, of course, didn't work the fight, but he claims he was there, but I never saw him. Because uh, yeah, Don, Don, I mean, Don Dolphy did the call, I believe. Yeah, you know, it was, uh, it was an amazing night, although in my mind, Todd, it's second to the quarry fight in Atlanta night. Really? That night was the most amazing, most amazing congregation of people that I had ever seen. Well, put us there. Tell tell us all about it, Dave. Put us there. uh, Oh, well, it was, it was, it was wide brimmed hats brimmed with purple ermine. There was yellow robes with gold Prim, and it was high heels and sequins, and those were the men. <laughs> I was going to say, the women were okay. even more beautiful. <laughs> you know, everybody showed up. It was like it was like Halloween in Harlem or something. They all were there. Everybody, every black person in America came to Atlanta. That night, Diana Ross was in Ali's uh, locker room afterwards. Uh, it was an amazing, uh, an amazing congregation of people, the, the likes of which uh, it was, try, you know, New York could even represent what had happened in Atlanta that night. It was, uh, it was an amazing, it was an amazing thing. The king, uh, Mr. T. Mr. T was working for Ali there. He was a bodyguard, right? <laughs> anyway, yeah. Uh, not doing a very good job of describing that. I'm trying to restrain myself, but it was uh, it was a, just an amazing, amazing thing. 
Hey there, my name is Michael Laminato and this is Pit Pass F1, a brand new podcast that'll take you closer to the action of the world's most prestigious motorsport. From Monaco to Miami and Australia to Azerbaijan, Pit Pass F1 is on the ground and has you covered. Esteemed F1 journalists Julianne Serasoli and Chris Medland will take you inside the sport every round. They'll keep you up to date with the latest news breaking in Formula One and the most influential views shaping the world of Grand Prix racing. Every Friday, we'll be bringing you a track guide and race preview, and Chris and Drew will be in your feed every morning from Saturday through to Monday to keep you up to date on all the day's action on and off the track. So if you want to be in the know on the latest in Formula One, subscribe wherever you get your favourite podcasts and visit us at evergreenpodcasts.com. Pit Pass F1, a brand new show for Evergreen Podcasts. Another amazing night occurred in Africa on October 30th, 1974, when Ali regained the heavyweight championship by knocking out George Foreman. It was the rumble in the jungle. Jerry Eisenberg covered that fight and put us there with his memories. Jerry, what did you think as the fight unfolded when Ali started doing the rope-a-dope strategy? What did you think was going on? And did you think- well, first of all, let me tell you, uh, I have a different opinion. I don't call it strategy because he got hit in the first round. And, you know, when Foreman hits you, he hits you. So he went to the ropes to figure it out. Mm. Well, he's standing there like this, trying to say, all right, now what am I going to do? Because that's the way Ali thought. And Foreman is winging these points. They're going to go. He's going to get through these two gloves. Going to get through the two gloves. I mean, you, you couldn't get through there with a mortar because Ali's holding his hands. I mean, he doesn't hit him in the stomach. He's going through the two gloves because he was stubborn. And he admitted right. that to me uh, years later. Ali says, well, this is not so bad. Let him punch himself out. The arms are heavy, big muscles. Uh, that, you know, you punch like a girl. Boom, boom, boom. You still haven't hit me. Boom, boom, boom. I mean, oh, you could hear Ali. Could you hear Ali oh, saying that? No, but he told me that later. Yeah. And, and Foreman told me that. Foreman told me he, he came up to him before the fight and said, you punch like a girl. And... Dundee and the Brain Trust is yelling, get off the ropes, get off the which I probably would have yelled if I were a, a corner man, get off the ropes. By the fourth round, Ali realized he wasn't getting off those ropes. Came and said, everybody here, shut the hell up. Just shut up. I know what I'm doing. Because mm-hmm. Angelo was a great PR man, and Angelo was a good trainer, not a great trainer, but he was great during the fight. Mm-hmm. You know, the you guy's doing this, you should do that. That's when he was really earned his money. Ali trained himself as far as, do I want to box today? Do I don't want to? Okay, so now the punch is coming. All during the fight, Lisker, by that time, Lisker hadn't taken over the New York Post yet. Mm-hmm. He was the sports editor of the London Sun because Murdoch wound up owning both papers. So he's got a broadcast of blow by blow to London because it's a shorter time frame. He's dictating during the fight. Yeah, yeah. exactly, because they're going to get it in the paper, they're going to get an extra round. And I said, what are you doing with the phone? He said, well, I'm going to do this. I said, yeah, the phone's not going to work. This is the morning of the fight. It's not going to work. Nothing works here. Don't you understand that? He said, look, and he dials the number, and somebody picks it up and says, hello, hello. And you, you see, it works. Jerry, 
I will take you to lunch at 21 in New York City if that phone works during the fight. And if it doesn't, all you got to do is get me a Big Mac. That's how <laughs> sure I am. Well, all during the fight, he's saying, he's on the ropes. I don't know why he's there. Can you hear me? Yes, I can hear you. Uh, he, he's not getting tired. He's I think he's hurting out. He's won everywhere. Can you hear me? Yes, I can hear you. And this goes on all through the fight. Bing, bang. Right cross, sneaky right-hand lead. Left, left hook, right again. But he's going down by that time. And as Whisker, he's going down, looks up. Can you hear me? And across the ring, the Belgian technician says, yes, I can hear you. He has broadcasted the entire fight from one end of the ring to the other end of the ring, and it's never got to London. <laughs> and that fight was better than Ali Foreman. Jerry went across that ring because <laughs> Jerry had been a boxing scholarship holder at San Jose State. And, but, but the whole, anyway, it ends. Now, one of the two Ali, It ends. I mean, Ali wears him down. I mean, the rope-a-dope works. Foreman tires out. Ali knocks him out. What was it like at that moment when Foreman fell to the canvas? Well, it was, first of all, it was like chopping down a California redwood. He fell in sections, like his ankles hit the ground, then his knees hit the ground, then his chest hit the ground. He says, he, he says today he thinks he might have beaten the count. I don't think he beat the count, and he didn't. He had no inclination to be. And like he said to me, I know he knew it because later on, years later, when he won back the title, he said, "I should have died. I should have gotten up and died, not to lose that title right mm -hmm. then and there." What was the crowd's reaction when uh, when it was? Official? Well, the whole crowd was. It was pro Ali. There were a fair amount. There were a number of American celebrities in it who couldn't re refrain from posing, even in Africa, when people didn't know who they were. Um, several American novelists were there. Uh, Norman Mailer and yeah, others. Yeah. Uh, what's his name? The guy that uh, did a wonderful book about pretending to be a football player with the Lions. Uh, I can't remember. Uh, yeah, George, George Clinton covered it for yeah. Sports Illustrated. Yeah, and, and, and you know, the guy who played Wyatt Earp was there. And, and I, I really, you know, I didn't. Somebody offered me an interview, and I said, I don't want to interview any of those guys. And I'm not going to let them interview me. I'm here to work. Mm. But anyway, it ended. Everybody goes crazy. Now, one of the two most poignant moments I ever had with Ali transpires here. It, After the fight. It pours rain, an African rain. If that had rained an hour earlier, there'd have been no fight. Mm. I mean, it was incredible. But this is Africa. When it stops, the sun is getting ready to rise. So I say to Dave Anderson, well, he's gone. And I said, I, you know, it was so rushed. We had, I'd like a second shot at this maybe for a follow for tomorrow. Let's go find him. And Dave said, well, if you know where he is, you know, there's like 3,000 acres on this uh, military thing. So I said, I think I, think I know where he'll be because I know him. Something about the river is mystic to him, the Congo River. He's going to go down and by the river. I just... Feel it. I just feel it. Mm. So we go back. We go down by the river. We're standing on a little hill. It's not big, but it, it's a rise, so we can see everything out there. Ali is facing the water, and he's looking toward what was once French Congo. 
And he's, I see his head move. I know he's yelling. I have no idea what he's yelling. We can't hear him, but we can see it. Now, we also know whatever it is, it's not a performance because as far as he's concerned, nobody is there but him, the river, and the crocodiles. That's it. Mm. And suddenly he shoves his hands up to the sky in a rocky pose. And he's still yelling. Puts his hands downstairs, turns around, walks away, sees us. Walks up to us and says, fellas, don't ask me what tonight meant to me. I couldn't tell you. And if I could, I couldn't, I don't have the words. And if I could, you wouldn't understand them. Mm -hmm. And I thought to myself, when people ask me what I, the way I like to think of him, that moment, thinking he was all alone, arms to the heavens, facing out after having done an impossible deed, in that instant, he was the king of the world. The entire world was welcomed by the king during his second reign as heavyweight champ. Longtime boxing writer Tom Lavero recalls visiting Ali's training camp as a young reporter in the late 1970s. When I was working for a weekly newspaper up in Strasbourg, a different news, weekly newspaper than the first one I've talked about, it was in the, in the, uh, in 78, when Ali was fighting the rematch with Spinks, mm -hmm. his training camp was at Deer Lake, Pennsylvania, an hour away from me. And I went up to Deer Lake one time as a reporter for this weekly newspaper that no one ever heard of. And I met Gene Kilroy, who was Ali's kind of like camp advisor and one of his close advisors. Mm -hmm. And uh, after Ali worked out, he would always go into his uh, dressing room and there'd be a bunch of reporters there, you know, Dave Anderson, uh, Pat Putnam. I mean, you know, the heavyweights of the business. So this guy, Gene Kilroy, let me into the room, the dressing room, as a, as a reporter. So I'm there with all these heavyweights, uh, and, you know, interviewing Ollie. Uh, then I started going up on a regular basis. And everyone got to know me there. Ali in particular got to know me. Uh, hmm. and, uh, actually one time it was just him and I, and he gave me a tour of his camp, including wow. the cabin where he slept with this big giant handmade bed that was there. So I would, I had a real inf affinity for Ali. So I'm, I mean, I, I still hope it wasn't fixed. Do you have a favorite story from those days you were hanging around as a young reporter at Deer Lake? Oh, that would be it. That would be the time that it would just, oh, I actually, uh, in 1980, when Ali came back in that unfortunate fight uh, with Larry Holmes, uh, he was working out again that summer at Deer Lake. And my parents, who lived in Florida, were up visiting from, uh, from there at the time. So I took them uh, to Deer Lake. Uh, my mom and dad were both boxing fans. Mm -hmm. And uh, when I was mm -hmm. growing up, my mom did not, was not an Ali fan, hmm. uh, like most of her generation or not. You know, they, she didn't like the big mouth. She didn't like the dancing in the ring the most. She didn't like that part. <laughs> uh, so, uh, so you know, after after Ali's workout, and the workout's open to everybody. It's re, it was remarkable back then that, you know, you could just wander in the camp and, and watch this guy train, and he would talk to the crowds and stuff. And so after his workout, sometimes he would come out and meet with people and sometimes he wouldn't 
So uh, my parents and I were all waiting outside his dressing room. We're a crowd of people and nobody knows if he's coming out or not. And time is going on and on. So my mom uh, reaches into her pocketbook, pulls out this article that I had written about Ali from the previous couple of years. I had no idea that she had it, but you know, like she like she, car- moms, she carried it around in her purse. I love a it. A lot of moms, she had like a scrapbook of everything I, I had written at that, that point. Right. So she starts yelling, you who, Mr. Ali, you who, Mr. Ali. And he Mr. comes Ali. out and uh, she says, my son wrote this story here about you. And he recognized me. Uh, right away. So he's looking at the story and he says, uh, did you write this? He says, you're not as dumb as you look, are you? <laughs> <laughs> so, and That's then he classic. wound up taking pictures with my parents and, you know, and stuff. So he, I mean, I, I loved the guy after that. To know him is, was to love him. Sports fans especially love the rivalry between Ali and Joe Frazier. After Ali won a rematch, the two warriors met for a third time and what became known as the Thrilla in Manila. It was one of the most brutal heavyweight fights of all time. Jerry Eisenberg recalls being there in the Philippines on that blazing hot day when Ali survived 14 grueling rounds to win on a technical knockout. Oh, yeah. You're sitting ringside, and you can hear this. Now he yells at Frazier. You ain't got no right. Frazier hits you with the right hand, and he stops. Didn't hurt him, but he, anyway, and Ali, Ali had a, a boxing IQ of, like nine million. I mean, he said something's wrong here. This guy can't throw a right hand. So, okay, he said you ain't got no right hand. You're too old. You can't throw a right hand. You can't do it. And Frazier yells, "Well, you better go talk to George Benton because here comes another boom." <laughs> now the fight turns. <laughs> now it's like a Wall Street graph. Alley's up. Alley's down. Alley's up. Alley's down. No knockouts. Until the very end when they're almost dead, no clinches. Why are there no clinches? Good question. I mean, you think about this. The greatest fight ever held and no, and no clinches that mean anything? Yeah. Heavyweights, two days before the fight, um, the Alley Group registers a protest with the commission, the Filipino Boxing Commission. We do not want a Filipino to work this fight as referee. What we want is Zach Clayton. Of course they wanted Zach Clayton because Zach Clayton loved that alley. Well, Fudge didn't want Zach Clayton. Fudge had another candidate. I think it was Jay Edson. But they both agreed on the reason. No Filipino is big enough to separate these two guys because it's really emotional, right? Mm-hmm. Rules meeting. I go to the rules meeting, which is usually nothing, but... I want to see what happens to the protest. I want to see who's going to work this fight because referees have styles too and that can impact on the fight. So in comes this guy. He's a colonel in the Filipino army. Reaches in his pocket, pulls out this cannon, puts it on the table. Biggest gun I ever saw. I don't know what the caliber was. 190, I, I don't know. <laughs> and he says, I understand there is some controversy about the official. There will be no controversy. This fight, and he taps the gun, will be refereed by a Filipino. <laughs> Any protest? Not me. <laughs> I'm not going to say anything with that gun out there. Not a word. Now he brings the referee in. It's a guy named Sonny Padilla, who later moved to Vegas and worked some fights out here and then went to work for the government. 
Sonny is the biggest Filipino I ever saw in my life outside of Roman Gabriel, the Rams quarterback. He's big, he's broad-shouldered, and he worked a masterful fight. He's the only guy I ever saw caution Ali. Right at the start, Ali had a habit. Put his hand behind your neck, pull your neck down, uppercut. He put the hand there. The uppercut never came because he jumped in and said, next time I'll throw you out of the arena. Mm. Frazier hit, yeah. hit him low, same round. Next time, I'll throw you out of the arena. So they didn't clinch. They were afraid of this guy. It was marvelous. And up and down, up and down, up and down. And now we get to like the the 12th or 13th. I haven't seen the fight for a while. I got a copy of it. I watch it a lot. And um, now Frazier's in trouble because his eye is starting to close. Both eyes, really, but this one, particularly the left one. And he can't see. Can't see. And... When he goes out for the 12th or 13th, Fletcher said, look, you got to straighten up. Now, Frazier was in the crouch fighter. He couldn't, you know, you got to straighten up. I don't want you fighting when you can't see or I'm going to stop this. All right, now when he straightens up, that's an invitation. Jab, jab, jab. Frazier is standing there in the 12th or 13th round, maybe somewhere's in there. Arms at his side. Legs are trembling like wet spaghetti. Ali's a foot away. All he's got to do is walk a foot, push him, fight over. Ali could not walk that foot. Mm. That's how much these guys left in that ring. And when it ended, in the fourteenth, the fourteenth round ends, and Eddie Fudge tells well, Frazier he's going to stop the fight. Well, he tells no, he he wouldn't. He knew he'd have trouble. Mm. He says to Benton, "Cut off the gloves." Benton takes his scissor and. Frazier gets up, he says, you touch his gloves, I'll kill the both of you. And and Frazier says, son, your eyesight means a lot more to me than who wins this fight. They stop the fight. Meanwhile, Kilroy, who is in the corner, and we disagree on, the only thing we've ever disagreed on about Ali, he says Ali had developed a habit because people would jump in the ring and he didn't want to get hurt. After decisions, he would fall to the ground. He couldn't, after two steps, he fell to the ground. And that's my story, and I'm sticking to it. Ali was so exhausted, he just so fell. So you don't know whether, who knows what would have happened if there was a 15th round. Thank God there wasn't. I had said in the 12th round to Jerry Lisko, who was sitting next to me, let them send these guys home and say they both won. I can't watch this anymore. I mean, it was the most brutal fight I'd ever seen in my life. And it ends. And now, Ali is walking up the aisle, and there's Dave Anderson, Terry Lisker, and me. Well, we we were three guys he recognized immediately. Mm-hmm. And when he when he had to pass us, when he got to us, he leaned in, and he said, "Fellas, that's the closest thing to death you'll ever see." Wow. And he goes by, and uh, he wasn't far from wrong. So I had a noun. I got to write. There's a time difference. I got like 30 minutes to write a column. To write a story is one thing. To write a column with an opinion. Here's how I started that column. I said, Muhammad Ali and Joe Frazier did not fight for the WBC heavyweight championship 
here in Manila last night. Nor did they fight for the championship of the planet. They fought as though they were on a melting ice floe in a telephone booth. And what they were fighting for was the championship of each other. And in my opinion, that never has been and never will be settled. Mm. That's you tell it's pretty good. I'm summing it up well, there. Jerry. Well, well, it'd be well because under it, the gun too, if man. I, <laughs> if I had, if I had time to think, it might not have been that good. Well, the thing was that that was such a bitter rivalry for Frazier. It never really won. His bitterness about Ali. Never went away, right? Like 25 years later, Ali didn't yeah, Ali they had a, Didn't Ali ask you to tell Frazier? Well, they had, a, they had a, they had a uh, phony reconciliation at one point. But it was phony. 25 years after the fight, I'm saying, still the best fight I ever saw. And I've seen a few thousand fights. Okay, I'm going to do a retrospective 25 years later, see if these guys change any opinions. So I get... I get um, Sonny Padilla, the referee. I got Angelo. I got Eddie Futch. I got um, a couple of other people. And I got the fighters. Now, first I call Ali. He says, you know, I don't know why he's mad at me. I said, Mohammed, you know, you know, you know Marvis. You've seen him grow up. Mar- Marvis came home from school crying. So Joe's son, Marvis. Yeah, because um, they were calling his father a gorilla because of his father saying, "I'll be a thriller and a chiller when I get the gorilla in Manila." And and you know, his son was in tears. How do you expect him to think about you? He said, "Well, that wasn't my intention. I was trying to sell tickets." I said, "My old man taught me." Never bullshit a bullshitter. You weren't selling tickets. Those tickets were gone. And 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 sorry, but um, you owe him an apology. He said, well, you got to talk to him? I said, yeah. He said, right after I hang up this phone, I'm calling him. And I'm going to tell him everything you said. He said, okay, you tell him. I said, if Marvis was really hurt, I'm sorry about that. It's never my intent to hurt his family. I said, I'll tell him. I call up Marvis. And before we go into it, I tell him what I'm going to do. And he says, you speak to him yet? He would never say Ali. You speak to him? I said, yeah, I spoke to him. And this, is he Joe, this is Joe you're talking about. Joe, it's Joe. Yeah. What, 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 what did he say? And I told him exactly what he said. He said, he said that, exactly that. I said, absolutely. Was he sincere? I think he was. Call him back when we're done and tell him, take his apology and shove it as far as it will go up his ass. That was 25 years after the fight. Now, Ali was still alive but couldn't speak years later. And I go to the boxing writer's dinner. I'm getting some kind of phony baloney award of some. And at the table next to me and my wife is Joe Frazier. He leans over and he says to me, you hear him today? You hear him try to talk? That's somebody up there giving me justice. Wow. Mm. He went to the funeral. I mean, no, he didn't go. Ali went to his funeral. That's luck would happen, yeah. But they never, Ali was convinced. He knew 
he went too far. But he was having such a good time. And the world was having a great time. The gorilla, Manila, you know, it just, they loved it because they didn't think it was going to be any fight. Yeah, they, didn't, they didn't see the pain it caused Frazier. Oh, way. no, absolutely. The fights took a toll on the aging Ali. He lost the title to Leon Spinks, then regained it in a 1978 rematch at the Superdome in New Orleans. Tom Archdeacon has good memories of covering that Ali fight, but his memories of working the bouts that followed are only sad. And uh, which was uh, a grand night. I mean, there was, uh, was in the Superdome, there was over 60,000 people or something. And it's just, uh, Joe Frazier sang the national anthem. And, uh, you know, ringside, there's Sylvester Stallone and John Travolta and Liza Minnelli, all these people. And and Ali comes in, and Ali had been beaten by Spinks uh, seven, eight months before that uh, on a uh, split decision. So he got in there, and uh, he had trained pretty hard for this. And he got in, and he was just kind of like the... Ali of old a little bit. He he kind of controlled this young kid. And uh, even there was times I can remember where he broke into the Ali shuffle. And this was, you know, he was in, uh, he must have been 35, 36 years old then. Sphinx was a lot younger, 11, 12 years younger. And he, he, he won a unanimous decision that night. And it was like the whole crowd, it was almost like they just converged on him as he went out of the arena. Just everyone followed him. And it was, uh, it was, and through, I can remember through the fight, Angelo Dundee, who was my friend from Miami, started Ali's trainer, and he started he started kind of taunting Spinks during the fight, going, uh, going, he would yell across the ring, going, "Goodbye, Leon, goodbye, Leon," and and it just it was just, and that's what it turned out to be. And uh, I was I was close. I was probably in the second row of the of the sports writers, you know. So I was, and I was up r- r- real real tight, you know, but I mean, I also talked to Dundee about it afterwards, but th- then I had two, uh, I covered him, one, two fights he never should have had, I, the the Holmes fight in, in Vegas, and, and then uh, the last fight when he fought Trevor Burbick in uh, Nassau, Bahamas, and that was just a, a terrible travesty, you know, and uh, it was just, it was so sad, he was just a ghost of himself when he came out, the whole production was screwed up from start to finish. I mean, it was like an amateur hour, and they, they forgot to open the gates. The crowd was outside, and they couldn't break. They, the gates were locked, and they couldn't get the crowd in. And then finally, people started crawling over the walls. And Finally, he comes in. There's Now, there were several other pretty good fights on there. Ernie Shavers fought, and a bunch of different guys fought on the card. But then when he came out, he just he didn't even look himself, and he's, he's fighting Trevor Burbick, a young guy, kind of unknown then. And Burbick, this was his hero. Burbick didn't even want to hit him at the end, you know. And it was just, he just, and it was hot that night, and it was it was outdoors. It was just, it was like, it's like when you see these guys that, uh, you know, it's like ending at some circus in some, you know, dusty town or something like that. I remember after the fight, he's sitting, I, I always remember this scene. I got in the dressing room right afterwards, and... uh John Travolta is there kneeling at Ali's. It was a surreal scene. Travolta's kneeling in front of Ali, holding his hands, weeping. <laughs> and uh, Ali, yeah, and Ali's consoling him, you know. So it was just, uh, and, and it was just, it was, yeah, he was crying. He was uh, on his knees in front of Ali, holding his hand. And it was just, it was just, uh, just a sad scene from 
and then finally Ali retired after that. But uh, and then I'd see him around. He didn't come around Miami much after that, you know. But uh, so uh, that's those were the two, you know. The, and the Holmes fight was it was just a, 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 a shell. Yeah, no, he had he had done something to lose a lot of weight, and it just is, you know, he had no sweat that night, and it, he just he just wasn't himself. Jerry Eisenberg shared a poignant story from covering Ali's loss to Larry Holmes in 1980. The Holmes fight was a horror. Right, in Vegas. I was in Ali's room the night before the fight alone, the two of us. Then he said to me, who are you picking? I said, Muhammad, listen to me carefully. I didn't come here to talk about the fight. I came here to tell you, I would think this might be your last fight. And like everything else about him, I was wrong. He fought one more time. And I just want to tell you, we had a hell of a ride, didn't we? He says, it ain't over. He jumps up, rips his shirt open, buttons flying. He stands here, arms like this. Son of a bitch, he looked like he did the night before he fought Mr. He said, now what do you think? And I said, Muhammad, you could have done that in the European health spot. What I didn't know was he'd been taking diuretics for a month. He was so weak when he got in the ring, he could barely lift his arms. I didn't know that. Mm. After that fight, which was horrible, one of the most unprofessional moments, I like to think it was the only unprofessional moment in my life. But by the fifth or sixth round, he hadn't thrown a punch, in my opinion. And I'm yelling, I, I jumped to my feet, and I yelled to Richard Green, the referee. Richard, stop the fight. You're going to get him killed. And then I sit down and realize what I'd done. I mean, how unprofessional is that? Mm. And they stopped the fight two hours. And by the way, for, you, for your listeners' information, it wasn't Angelo Dundee who stopped that fight. It was uh, uh, Herbert Muhammad, the manager, who was sitting five rows back and got to go for it and said, go down here, you tell Angelo, this stops now. Yeah, and what a horrible right. night when. All right, now when Holmes beating him. Yeah. I think I, I I gamble, I lose. Of course, naturally, that's why these buildings in Vegas still are standing. I I sneak into the because I go. They make the guy at the door knew me. I sneak into um, the showroom, and Sinatra is there as a featured attraction. And by the way, in the side outside, Sinatra was second banana. It was Ali. Uh, Holmes on top, and then that was Sinatra in the showroom. Mm. And he's talking about he just came from Ali's room, and he was a great man. And we said, and I don't want to hear this, you know. So I walk out, I gamble, I lose. I gamble some more, and I lose some more. Now I'm really pissed off at every. I'm pissed off at Caesars. I'm pissed off at Ali for having fought. Uh, I'm pissed off at the fact that Holmes was in an embarrassing position he didn't want to be in. Uh, yeah, because Holmes loved Ali. Yeah. So I go into, um, loved him so much that when Ali gave him a, a black eye as a sparring partner, he wouldn't put beefsteak on it. He wanted everybody to see the black eye when he got home because mm. it came from Ali. All right, so I go into the men's room. It's like 3.30 in the morning. An elderly Afro-American gentleman hands me a towel, you know, when I go to wash my hands. I say, elderly, today he'd be a kid to me. <laughs> but back then, he he had lines on his face. He was old, and 
compared to what I was, you know. And I was in my 40s. So um, I said to him, you mind if I ask you a question? He said, no, go right ahead. I said, did you bet on this fight? He said, you bet I did. And I said, who did you bet on? He looked at me and didn't say anything. He looked at me again. And then he said, I bet on the man who gave me dignity. Greatest eulogy I ever heard for Ali anywhere, anytime. Mm. Those were two moments that I really, I treasure a lot of moments because we had crazy times no matter where we went. And, And it was a circus. Ali became even more famous and beloved after his boxing career ended because of his humanitarian work and his public battle against his own Parkinson's disease. Mary Schmidt Boyer covered many Olympics, and among those games, one moment stands out from 1996. So when you think about your experiences in the Olympics, what what comes to mind? Oh, God. Uh, Muhammad Ali lighting the torch in Atlanta. Mm. (laughs) Um, I was sitting with my friend, my good friend, Don Burke, uh, from, he was with Newark, I believe, at the time. And, um, you know, everybody had been rumored and... um, as he approached it, you you weren't quite sure he was going to, and everyone clapped. I mean, all our, it was the most amazing thing I have ever seen. Um, you Why? Know, what, still, what, what was it about that moment that got you? Um, I was a, a big Ali fan to begin with, just because of how he conducted himself. He was, um, uh, you know, unlike most athletes of the time, you know, he was a, um, a political figure and, and made his opinions known. And he was really smart and really funny. And I was just a, a big fan of how he, I actually stood in line. Um, the Super Bowl was in Minnesota in 1992 and he was signing autographs and I actually stood in line to get his autograph. I was just a big fan. And mm-hmm. so um, just watching him, he did climb the steps, right? He climbed the steps to... I think he came out from behind in the shadows at, on, on the platform the itself. Yeah. Anyway, just, you know, he, his Parkinson's, you know, you weren't sure he could actually live. And just to see him overcome his physical liabilities to do this unbelievably um, symbolic gesture and the reaction that he got from the crowd when the crowd realized it was, uh, um, that was probably my number one sports moment. Uh, it was just fantastic. Everyone clapped. Everyone stood up. It was, uh, it was unbelievable, basically. Dave Kindred recalls being there that night as a sports columnist for the Atlanta Journal-Constitution. But I think now the Olympics probably in 96, I think when he lit the torch there, I think it it caused a revival of interest in Ali. And I think then there was a, a full reconsideration of how does a man go from being the most reviled man in America to practically a living saint? Mm-hmm. And I think he did that a lot of it because he, he soldiered on through this damage that he was suffering uh, without ever complaining about it. You know, he saw it as a as a test of uh, as a test sent to him uh, by Allah, and I think then to see a man persevere 
And without crying about it, without blaming anybody about it, you know, I think then they saw the basic goodness that was in Ali. And that, that became very clear then to just see him uh, light that torch just through, I think everybody then had a, a different feel for who he was and who he had been. What was that moment like for you as a columnist in Atlanta to see that? Well, I was, I was, I don't think I saw it the way everybody else saw it. I, I was fearful for him. You know, I, I didn't know it was going to happen. You know, I, I had no secret information about it. Um, but when I saw him there, my literally, Todd, I don't think I wrote this, but literally it was, my God, what is going to happen? Because he was holding the torch, but he was trembling so much. And I'd seen him tremble in, in other instances, but I'd never seen him standing on top of a tower holding right. fire in his hand. And I could see that he couldn't do what he wanted to do. And I could see that you know, when, he got, when he got nervous, anytime he was nervous, he shook more. And he was really shaking then. I thought he was going to drop the torch. I fear he was going to drop the torch and light himself on fire. And then I, you could see the fire coming up the torch onto his arm. Uh, uh, and they would still get emotional about that because it was, it was, I, I was, everybody else was just in awe, but I don't think they saw the trembling. I don't think they saw that. May, they may have seen it on replay. They may have suddenly noticed it, but I noticed it from the start. It, it seemed like seemed like 15 minutes before he could put that torch where it was supposed to be. It was probably 15 seconds, 20 seconds, you know, but it, it, it scared me. But everybody else, I, I saw it in a, everybody else saw it, and I did too, really, at bottom. I was just scared at the moment. It was just a great moment in his life it was a great moment in, in, the, in America's life, you know, mm -hmm. for this man to be forgiven, you know, by, even by, by people who had despised him to, to, of course, now he was defenseless. Now he was helpless. Now he was not going to hurt us anymore. So all was forgiven, but it was just a, it was a great moment that everybody, I think, whoever knew Ali, Everybody who ever saw him at his best uh, would remember would remember forever. I certainly will. Any moment with Ali proved special for the writers fortunate to be around him. That was true for George Diaz, a longtime Florida boxing writer and a former colleague of mine at the Cincinnati Post. And it was true for me, too. We'll close this special episode with George and I sharing our own encounters with the greatest. Spent a lot of years covering boxing, major championship fights, and I know you came across a lot of characters in that field, um, including the, the great Muhammad Ali. W when did you cross paths with Muhammad? I crossed paths with him several times. It was all after he had retired. Uh, I'm old, but not that old. So um, one time, it's just said a few times in Miami Beach, um, uh, down at 
you know, it was, I don't know, it was at the Fifth Street gym. I remember being at a hotel. Uh, another time it was in, in Japan for a, uh, for a fight, uh, for the Tyson fight. He was there for the Tyson Tubbs fight. But uh, my best and closest encounter with him um, was in when I was at the Post. Uh, he was doing a um, memorabilia show in Dayton, Ohio, of all places. Hmm. So got my boxing contacts. I got it squared up that I would go there. And you know, it's a, it's a, as we like to say, it's a room service column when you got Muhammad Ali in the mix. So it was, I was just going to go down there to see what I could get. And, um, of course, I was going to hope to be able to talk to him a little bit. And so the guy tells me, his manager goes, well, we're going to go back to the hotel. So why don't you ride with us to the hotel? Sure. <laughs> uh, I'm in, right? Unfortunately, yeah. I was, I would have worked it out one way. I don't care why. I would have gotten in that, in that cab, in that van, no matter what. But I had my car with me. But my uh, girl I was dating at the time, she was with me. So she was able to drive my car over there. And actually, she came up with me and uh, I talked with him a little bit on the um, uh, in in the van and he's had Parkinson's but he still has has this majestic presence about him despite that disease or he had anyway um, and then he came up and he did a couple of magic tricks they were a little silly stuff he, he used to do you know pretending he was levitating and all that but it's kind of neat you have Muhammad Ali do magic tricks for you in a whatever room whatever it was at the Holiday Inn in Dayton I didn't have that in my career bingo card at any point. You know, I actually went to a, it might have been the same year, because I was at the Cincinnati Post too, but uh, there was a, a symposium for, about Muhammad Ali at Miami University in Oxford, Ohio. And I went um, to hear Robert Lipsight from the New York Times speak. And Robert was speaking for about 10 minutes in this little classroom. There's probably a dozen of us in this classroom listening to Robert Lipsight. And about 10 minutes in, the door opened. And Muhammad Ali walked in. Oh, my gosh. And it was like, everybody just stood up. Like, we were just overcome by this, this like, totally unannounced, you know, appearance by Ali. And I'll never forget, he squeezed himself into this little, like, student's desk. And um, he listened to Lipsight for a while. And he actually signed Korans for us. That's, the, like, the only time I ever got an autograph. Because oh, I figured wow. I wasn't working that night. And I'm, you know, I'm going to get one. I still have it. So, uh, so Ali could just, like magic, right? Like he's doing magic for you. He could just appear magically in places where like, oh my gosh, it's Ali. And he just walked into a room. Thanks for listening to Press Box Access. You can find us here with a new episode every other Wednesday. If you enjoyed this episode, please be sure to subscribe and follow us on Apple Podcasts or on your favorite podcast app. We'd love for you to review us Five stars would be nice. Follow us on social media. Drop us an email at pressboxaccess at gmail.com. And be sure to spread the word. Everyone is welcome here. This has been a production of Evergreen Podcast. A special thank you to executive producers Michael D'Aloya and Gerardo Orlando, producer Bill Hoffman, and our audio engineer, Nathan Corson. I'm your host, Todd Jones. It's closing time. Rock on. Hi, listeners. We wanted to take a moment to tell you about another podcast from Evergreen Podcasts and Sound Talent Media called Pit Lane Parlay. Pit Lane Parlay is the go-to podcast for IndyCar and motorsports-related news. 
Each episode, we discuss things like our favorite drivers, news clips from the last week, and generally giving each other a hard time about predictions we've made in the past and or life stories that have come up recently. We really have a lot of fun with it and really enjoy each other's company, and we hope you can come join us too. Join Pit Lane Parlay by following us on your favorite podcast today.